Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. My name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders of our community of the traditional storytelling, people who, for their work, travel about telling myths, legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom, and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad that you're here. Lynette Ford and I met a number of years ago, before we both turned grey, at the Northlands Confabulation. I really enjoyed her company, we got on well, and she told the best spooky stories I have ever heard. Not just were the stories great tales, but her telling could be classed as, if not the best telling of spooky stories, then one of the top three in the USA. Lynette is quiet and unassuming, but a force to be reckoned with. She has written a ton of books and recorded a number of CDs, and she's a laughter yoga teacher. We spent quite a bit of time chatting before and after the interview, which was done over StreamYard. There are a small number of places where the audio gets a bit fidgety, so don't think it's you, it's me. Don't they all say that? And you don't miss anything, so don't worry. Please enjoy this fun conversation with Lynette Ford. So, Lynn, thank you so much for being part of this series. I'm very excited to have you here with me today so that we can chit chat and find all about you and your craft. Um, and we met, that, the first time I think we met was at Northlands. Yeah, that's right. Which was a long time ago. Yeah, my hair was still black then. <laughs> was it that long ago? Or did you yeah. just stop coloring it? <laughs> well, combination of the two. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> and um, you, the stories that you told, they were, they were ghost stories. And it was some of the best ghost storytelling that I have ever heard. And it just, so good, so good. And I knew um, that when you. I started this, that I wanted to have you on my show and talk about your craft. And there's other, there's other reasons as well. Um, but that was one of them. The other one is that you're you, you're quite a prolific writer in in the folklore industry. Now you live in Ohio, right? Yep, Columbus, Ohio. And that's like the far end of the Appalachians. Is that the Appalachians? Is that right? It's not considered Appalachian, but um, if you just go just a little bit to the east, you hit the you start to hit the foothills of the Appalachian region. And okay. I was born in Appalachian, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. All right. All right. And how, how many people were in your family growing up? Um, I'm the oldest sister. I had a sister. She passed away last year and uh, a brother. But in our family, I counted once 29 cousins between the ages of five and 12 at the time at a family gathering. That doesn't include the teenagers that were a part of the group, too. So a pretty big family. That's so cool. And now I, you know, being an Englishman um, or expat, whatever you want to call me, you know, when I hear about Appalachian tales, I always like think in these teeny tiny little cabins filled with like a million people all living together. Yeah, yeah. 
which is very narrow-minded and very silly. But did, did you? I got to ask you: Did you grow up in a cabin? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the stereotype that still exists, and it is, um, it is. people don't realize Pittsburgh is a part of the Appalachian region. You know, there's some right. bigger cities, but where we lived, um, we were on a hill, and um, everything seemed to be on a hill. Yeah. Um, you were either walking up or down, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a family cabin in East Liverpool, Ohio, that had been made by some of the men, and um, they added rooms onto it. So it was a good-sized cabin, and uh, it had an outhouse when I was a little girl, which I tried my best not to have to use, <laughs> um, and it had had a detached kitchen you know, like a like a separate building, but then they added in okay. between, so the kitchen was part of the house. That was to keep the house cool in the summer. You didn't have the kitchen as a oh. part of the house. Um, but then highway came through and they took all that land, so we lost that family cabin, and I'm trying to put some stories together about that now. Oh, you are? Mm-hmm. That must have been a hard time for the family to give up that space. Well, by that time, um, no one was really living in that house. But mm. my great grandparent, my great grandmother, not my great grandparents, my great, I called him Great Pop. He had died. Um, she was still living there and she had this lovely old Victorian gingerbread type house on a, on a hill. Mm. And that was taken to. <sighs> and uh, she was the last person in the family that was still living in East Liverpool. So it was really kind of sad. And she didn't live a lot longer after that. Yeah, I, I imagine it broke her heart and spirit to have to move out of that place. That's that's sad. Yeah. yeah. Well, she, you figure she'd lost so much. Um, she and my great-grandfather um, married after his first wife died. And she didn't have a lot of family. And I was the favorite great-grandchild. And of course. You know, well, <laughs> I well, I was might have been the favorite, but I probably wasn't the best behaved. But um, well, that doesn't always go together, anyway. No, no, it's called a trickster, I guess. But yeah, right. You know, she was in an assisted living community, and mm-hmm. um, she kept saying I was coming to visit, and really I wasn't, and I didn't know how sick she was at that time. And um, I was told afterward that in her mind, every hour I was coming to visit. And I felt something was wrong. But at the time, our kids had chicken pox. So I wasn't going anywhere, you know. So, yeah, that part of the story of the cabin is kind of sad. But I'd like to put all of that together into one story that I can tell, maybe put into a book. Yeah. No, that, yeah, that sounds like a, an incredible story of, of grief and healing, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how our landscapes change as well. Um, yeah. it's, it's, really, it's really sad because the highway down there went through the neighborhood that had been primarily African-American and Italian. They didn't even consider putting it in another part of the region, in part because it is such a hilly area. Mm -hmm. But um, there are those biases that meant they weren't going to look at some areas first. They were going to look at that neighborhood, that community first. 
you know, this was the right route to take it and you happen to be there and you happen to be Italian, African-American, so screw it, we don't care. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's just, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah it's, I, I don't think too many people realize how, how deep prejudice can go and, and on, on a, not just on a small scale, but on like the larger scale like that. Right, right. The people were in that neighborhood because they hadn't been permitted to live anyplace else. Um, it was predominantly families of African-American heritage and Italian-American heritage. And people don't think of Italians as Appalachian, but, mm -hmm. you know, it was a place of great diversity. Um, uh, and uh, there was one advantage there. Uh, East Liverpool was the pottery capital of the United States. Really? At the time. Um, a lot of the pottery, I don't know if it was Hull or McCoy, I can't remember that, but a lot of the pottery was being made there. And people of color were not permitted to work in the mill. Now, if you came from an Irish-American family uh, anywhere in the UK and you happened to come into East Liverpool, you were welcome to work in those factories, but not if you were a person of color. And that was an advantage because the men working in those factories started to die because of the dust from the pottery oh, wow. that was getting into their lungs. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was also a place where people were working in coal mines and things too, mm -hmm. but to work in a factory and die of the dust. Um, yeah. That was that in a lot of the cotton mills as well. Yeah, the dust from the cottonwood do the same thing. It's I, yeah, it's ironic that the the Irish came over, who were dealing with the same things that African American people were dealing with in the UK right. to come over here and and then I, and I don't want to say take jobs away, but you know they they took jobs that you you know African Americans could have done just as, just as well. Easily. I don't, and I don't mean that they were treated much better. They were no, just I expected they into the no. factory. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. They also worked in the mines, and they also were given the lowest denominator of jobs, you know. So it wasn't much better for them. Uh, but wow. to yeah. go through all that they were going through and then think they're doing a little bit better and then get some kind of lung disorder from working in those factories, to me, was really sad for them, yeah. too. And it's it's, as I said, it was really sad for the people who weren't respected, who weren't considered um, at a level of humanity where they would be given the opportunities that they really deserve just for doing their best and working as hard as they could. So, yeah, that's also a part of the the family's history, too. But it's a uh, something that a lot of people don't know about East Liverpool, mm -hmm. Ohio, you know. Um, yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> Well, my great-grandparents had a neighbor, Miss Mary, and she was a very strange person. She was unique. And, um, I do tell stories about Miss Mary sometimes, but um, I was in her kitchen one time, and I accidentally broke a, a teacup. She was giving me tea, and I got really nervous, and I was ready to cry. Um, and she said, oh, that's all right, baby. Here, break another one. And she reached into the really? cupboard 
And she handed me another cup. Now, I was calling them teacups, but they were really mugs. They were the, the pottery. And she took one and she threw it on the floor and it broke. And then she laughed and she swept things up and I helped her sweep things up. And she explained to me that they were so cheap for the people in East Liverpool that you could buy bunches of these things if you lived there. But also she said they won't let our folks work there but they're oh. happy to sell us these things. She, so she said every time somebody made her mad, she'd just grab a mug and throw it on throw the it. floor. Yeah, good for her. That's <laughs> excellent. I like that. Now, now you've said that you're a fourth-generation storyteller. Mm-hmm. So who, yeah. who were your influences in storytelling when you were growing up? <clears throat> my father was my Other favorite. Miss Mary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, she did a lot of biblical storytelling. And oh, she did? Uh, if you walked in the house, you're supposed to say a Bible verse as soon as you walked in the door. Wow. <laughs> and she, she had a Bible on a little table, a little pie crust table by the front door. And if you ran in there and you didn't say your verse, she'd stop you. And she'd say, say your verse and don't say Jesus wept because that was the shortest <laughs> verse in the Bible was Jesus oh, wept. I didn't so know you, that. That's funny. So you'd have to look up one if you couldn't think of one and read it from the Bible. And she'd say, that's right. That's right. And then you could come in the house. So she was, yeah, she was an influence on me, but my father was my favorite storyteller. Um, And he told a lot of folk tales, but he didn't talk about the fact that he was in the last graduating classes of the Tuskegee Airmen, um, whose battle was integrating the troops on this side of the, the water. Right, uh, and then my second favorite storyteller was Pop Pops, my grandfather. That was my mother's father, and he told a lot of tall tales. He could make them up on the spot, and uh, Grandma Josephine called him a liar. He wasn't a tall tale teller to her. He he was just a liar. That's what she would say. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so did he wear that badge with pride like Bill Lepp does? <laughs> oh, he'd, he'd say that's all right. I'm good at it. <laughs> you know, yeah. He, <laughs> He was never ashamed of anything, you know. And she was always blessing him for something. And but but she she'd put her hands out and she kind of hissed. She'd inhale. Lord, give me wisdom. And she'd have her hands up toward him. Lord, give me wisdom. Don't give me strength, because if you give me strength, I'm gonna kill him. Lord, give me wisdom. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's so great. And then I had great, uh, great aunts who told stories, but they also told a bit, you know, a family story. And um, I was always at the table when people were talking about what somebody did in the family. And my great grandfather told stories and my great grandmother told uh, stories from the a lot from the Bible. But every now and then she'd tell some other little story. So um, my great, great grandmother is a part of the family legend because I don't really know much about her and we're trying to do some family research but family legend is that she held me when I was a little baby uh, newborn and she just kept whispering to me so it might have been the first stories that I heard wow that's pretty cool I mean even if she wasn't and she was just you know telling you she loved her yeah right or babbling yeah, yeah right <laughs> babbling. A, <laughs> yeah right that's still a really cool thing that, that that's that's so really neat are you are you still very religious in your family um spiritual yes religious no um uh, my religion is love 
if you go to the New Testament, it says God is love. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe in. So I don't try to judge anybody else's faith as long as it's not hurting anyone or anything. And we have people of Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Native American practice. Um, Some don't go to church at all, but they are some of the best people you'd ever want to meet. And they'd help you no matter what. Um, Unitarian Universalists. So it's this mishmash. And I had one great uncle who said, uh, sprinkled, splashed, dipped, dunked, or walking in the rain, it's all the same. So (laughs) I like to think of it that way. Yeah, I think there's an element of truth to that. So do you think, do you think that living, uh, you know, growing up in that that family unit and and living in the Appalachians uh, was part of that, like caring and being that good person? It was it was important to watch out for one another, and to respect the elders because they were not just passing on stories, passing on heritage and teaching and. Um, they had old ways of taking care of you when you were sick. Um, I think in the where I lived when I was a little girl, I don't think anybody worried about whether they were poor. They helped one another. And when we moved up to what was called the hill, mm-hmm. it was the same thing. The whole hill was pretty much cousins, um, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and the ones in between that you weren't related to by blood were called auntie and uncle or Mr. and Mrs. So it made for a a community that really was a village where everybody watched over one another. That's so neat. That's, yeah, I think, I I wish our society could come back to that. Oh, yeah. Bringing families a lot closer together. Um, I, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know what prejudice was until I started school. When we moved up to the the hill, um, neighborhoods were actually segregated. There was the Italian neighborhood and the German neighborhood, and our hill was a combination of people, but it was, um, let's say, half African-American and half European-American. kind of a middle-class neighborhood. And that's another thing about Appalachia. People don't think there was a middle class or an upper class. Mm -hmm. And there could be. But when I started school there in first grade, I was called the N-word for the first time and I'd never heard it. I had no idea what it was. I just knew that the person who said it had something against me. Yeah. You know, there was hate in in the voice. Yeah, and you figure first grade, she had to have learned it from someone. Children are born like that, you know. So, yeah, first grade. That's that's yeah, they've heard that before. Yeah, and and it was farther up the hill. So, in a in a neighborhood that was predominantly European American, so it was almost like um, I was an interloper to her coming into the schools and one teacher actually slapped me because she thought uh, I was lying about my grade on a spelling test. I'll never forget that. Uh, I was telling her that the boys on either side of me were cheating off my paper and she slapped me and she said um, I was cheating off of them. 
and uh yeah my mother came to school and it was a whole little incident about it but wow. I, I it was just i wasn't expected to get high grades and to do that seemed to be an insult to some people and i never understood that but it made me defiant i was going to get the best grades i could get Good just, you. just to prove them wrong and um yeah. you know it, it also yeah my mother was thrilled sure with not. that you're you're not that much older than me, are you? I don't know. I I'm almost seventy. Yeah, okay. All right. So yeah, I'm mid fifties. Oh, close, you're close a baby. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I would. Yeah, I I yeah. I guess yeah. So that's uh, so. Yeah. Okay. Then so I'm fifty. So my yeah. So you're you're close to the age of my mum. Yeah, I'd be your um, babysitter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm just trying to put it in my head in perspective of like, you know, you know, I remember me growing up in England and some of the prejudices that that we had, Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was a, it was, it was a lot of, there was, there was a lot of prejudice against people from India Mm. Um, and, and, you know, people from the West Indies, uh, which is a lot of people uh, came from the West Indies as opposed to directly from Africa. Um, So they were a lot more accepted than people from India. Oh. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, so so now looking at your your history, I'm trying to think. Well, okay. And so what what was my mum going through? What was she seeing when she was going to these jazz clubs in Birmingham in England? Mm-hmm. So yeah, because she she loved jazz. She was a big jazz fan. So she saw like people like Count Basie and Ella Fitzgerald and. Oh yeah. Um, Louis Armstrong. She went to see all of these people. She's got these um, brochures, you know, these programs from these shows, and I, I, she still got them. And I used to, when I was a kid, I used to go into the big cedar chest and, and just look through them because I love mm-hmm. those pictures, you know, and I love the music because my mum and my dad, before they got divorced, used to play a lot of jazz, and it like got into my bones, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And you had a cedar chest too. That yeah. you know, that's a memory some people don't have too. You know. Right, right. A thing stored in a cedar chest. I can remember digging through, and there was a lot of lace, um, tablecloth, and uh, very delicately uh, hand stitched pieces in there um, at my great grandmother's uh, and at my uh, great aunt's next door. And they had been given to them by the people for whom they worked. Uh, oh, okay. Because, you know, there'd be a little hole in it or something, and they'd give it to them. And they could both stitch these things. You would never know that there was something wrong with them or or wow. um, do some type of little embroidery where the hole had been and it, it it didn't show. So, yeah, there's so much that young people haven't experienced um, yeah. Even the darning of socks. Now we just say darn sock and throw it out if there's a hole in it, you know. Not but... in our house. <laughs> no? I'm the you darner. See? Yeah. You're the darner? Oh, I, I do all the, you know, I fix the clothes. So these, I've got to show you these. People won't be able to see this on the on the thing, but if you if you can see that, the cuffs were starting to come apart. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I stitched them all up again. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's probably not anywhere near as neat and tight as your aunts and your mom and all those. 
Oh, mine isn't, yeah, mine isn't even as neat as theirs, but yeah, I will still repair things, you know, rather than throw them out or try to make them into something else. But uh, yeah, the cedar chest was a treasure trove. Uh, It is. It's like, it's, it's like a real life treasure chest. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what was your, what was your first job? What what did you do when you left high school? Did you go to college? I assume you did Um, go to college. Well, in I had a job in high school that I'd rather forget. I was actually a model, <laughs> a model nice. and a salesperson. Yeah, this body now just you know it kind of wrapped around that little skinny body that I used to have <laughs> um, uh, for Bonnie Bell Cosmetics. <laughs> We had to dress in a certain way and there'd be a time when they'd stop things and we'd have to walk around and show off whatever we were wearing and and then sell cosmetics. I hated that job because I didn't even like wearing dresses and I didn't wear makeup, but my mother and my aunt had talked me into going for it. So that was my first job. And then I did go to, to college, Penn State University, but I always seemed to work in preschool after that. And okay. I was certified as a preschool teacher for a long time. But you have more degrees in, in education than that, don't you? Um, no, I don't. In fact, I want to get a master's in um, storytelling since you can get that at East Tennessee State. But I haven't made the time for it. But um, creative writing, English at Penn mm-hmm. State University. And then I had uh, an associate's degree in a specialized business, which was the computers of the the day, and all of that has gone by the wayside because they don't even use those kind of computers anymore. So it's a nice they piece of paper. They don't use card punch and tape anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just it's. I look at it and I think, well, it's a nice piece of paper. I don't even tell people about it most of the time. <laughs> it's well it's 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 going to be valuable at some point because it's going to you know it's going to be like this is part of history this is you know the punch cards and the tape and and you know i mean that's all gone by the wayside oh now, yeah but that was back in, yeah i mean keep that that's excellent <laughs> i don't know why it's just it's just paper you know i know i know i like those old things though uh, <laughs> so how did you move from that into storytelling um, well, the, everybody seemed to tell stories in the family and I'd always told stories to my sister and brother and my cousins when I had to babysit. In fact, they told me I scared the pants off of them most of the time. <laughs> and so I had a lot of practice with the scary stories. Um, but you know, I told stories for my preschoolers and when I got married for the ch- children and, um, when Bruce and I got married, because the first marriage we refer to as a learning experience. Okay. <laughs> and, um, when Bruce and I got married, we then had four children and I would share stories at bedtime and read to them, of course. And the two youngest told their teachers I was a good storyteller. And the uh-huh. teachers started bringing me into the schools to tell stories. And from that volunteer work, I started getting paid for coming into the school and I started doing uh, writing workshops with the kids in their classes and doing assemblies. And it just kind of grew from my children volunteering me in their classroom. So storytelling chose you. 
Seems like it. And it was a good yeah. choice. Yeah, it was a good choice. I'm grateful for it. I, I never would have thought of it as a money-making type of thing. I still don't. <laughs> I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. My father would probably have paid me to shut my mouth. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. That's too bad. <laughs> He'd That's be proud bad. of me, but he would laugh that people were paying me <laughs> to, to run too. my mouth, you know. <laughs> yeah. what, what, do you, what do you feel is important about folk and fairy tales? I think it's a foundation, not just for language skills, but for communication. And I really think it's important for younger ones to hear those folk tales, uh, particularly from their the cultures of their families, because it gives them a foundation it connects them to history. Um, it helps them to imagine. And that's a problem-solving skill in itself, being able to yeah. imagine. So uh, there's so much that folk tales and fairy tales can offer for education and for connection and for communication and um, getting to know one another. Because, you know, some of those folk tales traveled the trade routes and the same stories are told in different variants in many parts of the world right right and did your brothers and sister uh, brother and sister do they tell stories um my sister became a minister so, so a yes. different kind of storytelling but definitely a storyteller and when she and i would get together it was always that's not the way that story went it went like this you know what i mean so we we couldn't <laughs> yeah. even agree on the life stories much less some of the folk tales but she was an excellent oh, so your family stories you disagreed with oh yeah at times wow. we disagree on those too and my brother um he became a music minister at his church and now he's a patient advocate at a hospital in um where are they macon georgia okay. but um yeah he he still he told stories to his children and so in that way it's been carried on but i'm the only one that does the so-called platform storytelling yeah. and puts them into books yeah that's so cool now you honor your father with what you call your home fried tale Yes. And you say that your father was also a terrible cook apart from his steak and fries. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. My father thought he was a good cook. Okay. <laughs> um, he was an excellent storyteller, best natural born storyteller I think I've ever heard. But as far as l letting him loose in the kitchen, that was scary. <laughs> um, he, he could make a wonderful steak and he could make home fried potatoes that were with the onions and the pepper and salt and they were delicious and he could make good barbecue if my mother made the barbecue sauce because my dad would make it so hot that it would blow the top of your head off and uh i think that's why he was bald at a young age <laughs> he just, just burned all the hair off the top of his head <laughs> <laughs> he, he would he would go into the refrigerator and just look and see whatever was there and he'd throw it all into one skillet with some butter or some bacon grease and he'd just let it simmer and he'd stir it and stir it and you know Simon it came out gray whatever yeah. he was cooking it just yeah. just kind of mushed together and then he'd put pepper on it and, and if it was too thin he'd put cornmeal in it and, and then it. if it didn't that doesn't taste, sound good no it wasn't 
And then he put hot sauce on it if it didn't have enough flavor. And he'd go, Woo, that's good. That's good. And he'd say, Lenny, taste this, Lenny. And I'm and I'm just shaking my head. Uh-uh, Daddy, that's all right. That's no, no. So I honor him by calling my stories home fried tales. Because of the wonderful home fries he could make and the wonderful stories he could tell. So did you tell stories when he was cooking? Yep, he would do that. And when he was driving, uh, he would tell stories as we were on our way to places. But he would start talking and he'd see a road and he'd go, oh, that that looks good. Let's go down there. <laughs> we so get we lost. Could tell the story. <laughs> well, we'd get lost. Um, uh-huh exploring and so my after a while my mother and my sister and brother didn't want to ride with them because they got tired of getting lost out in the country <laughs> and it became a joke we I, um i'd ask him where were we going he'd say we're we're on the way to lost <laughs> which was probably what was going to happen and we'd get home late and my mother would be worried and furious and dinner would be done but we'd been lost again but you were hearing some great stories and spending some quality time with your dad. Absolutely. I didn't realize till I was in my 30s, I had heard stories that my own sister and brother hadn't heard yeah. when we were on our way to Lost, you know. Yeah. He would he would um, go out into the country or go out to a neighbor, uh, neighbor at a far distance and cut grass or help uh, turn the soil for their next garden for, for elders. And he would help build things and he could rewire houses and so we would be going all kinds of different places but we never came home by the straightest shortest routes <laughs> it was an adventure oh so did you pick up any of the trades that he i mean can you i mean i don't, I don't suppose you can rewire a house because that takes a certain kind of right. knowledge but you can did, did I, you pick up skills that allow you to at least do some some of that work well, I when I was a teenager, you know the old TVs that had the tubes in them? Yeah. And I used to be the one that tested the tubes, and I could solder the wires, and I could change the tubes, and I knew how to degauss the screen if somebody magnetized the screen, and I could make my own antenna so that you could get channels that we other people couldn't get that kind of thing as a teenager uh, as an, so you're an early tv hacker I like yeah that. yes oh yeah <laughs> a little a little hanger clothes hanger and some aluminum foil you know stick it out the window <laughs> but it worked um yeah right. but, um as an adult i'd have to say what he taught me was persistence and being willing to take a chance on things and to learn new things and to not give up so it was more the kind of skills that make you a stronger person yeah. i can't i can't say that um <laughs> well nobody's using tvs with tubes in them anymore that's true, that's true. <laughs> and i can't say that i ever would attempt to try to rewire uh, anything in a house <laughs> particularly these days with so yeah. much that has changed but um he he did a lot of different things. He worked in a in a steel mill, and uh, that was partly what killed him because of those extra chemicals. Uh, he got cancer, but uh, he by the time he was very sick, he was working with the housing authority in uh, uh, Sharon, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. He was the first black person. Um, with the housing authority 
And so, you know, that was a big deal. And he never said a word. People didn't know. He would just, I know he was going to a meeting because he'd have his suit on. So he also taught me, you know, be be proud of yourself, but you don't have to toot your own horn all the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I learned a lot from him in those ways. That's really cool. Let's get back to storytelling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or yes. have we got there already? I don't think. I don't know. Kind of, like we're, kind of, we're like a skimming <laughs> stone bouncing over. Right? Yeah, you and I are so, telling stories. I know. So what what has to what do, what does a story have to have for you to get into it? Um, when it comes to a folktale or a fairy. A folktale. I'm not too much for romances unless there's some humor oh, okay. involved in them. And I think the humor on the light side of folktales and the uh, terror on the dark side of folktales are the two things that kind of attract me. Because um, you, don't, you don't let up in those dark tales. No, <laughs> you just you just like, you know, you are you go into the pit and you stay in there. And you bring everybody who's listening to you with you. And then you close the pit up and say, here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> Hang on. Fasten your Except you don't warn there. them. <laughs> we have to find that out for ourselves. <laughs> well, I just, I feel like it's a safe ride. You know, yeah. you might get excited. You might be anxious, but I'm going to bring you out safely on the other side. It yeah, might not have a happy ending, but it'll, it'll have a perhaps a thought-provoking ending that makes you go, hmm, and uh, kind of carry it with you. And that's my joy, knowing that somebody is carrying this story with them. Yeah, yeah, you do that so well. So um, you sometimes use rhyme and rhythm. And does that come from your childhood education studies, or is that something from your childhood? Um, my dad, I think. Really? Yeah. Um, he liked to recite poetry too, um, particularly Edgar Allan Poe. When you're supposed to be going to bed, you know, no. But but he all of a sudden he would start. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, and he had this deep bass voice. Really. And you're supposed to be getting ready for bed. And that's his version of a bedtime story is to start <laughs> with, with uh, the raven from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. But he would also have little tunes and little rhymes in the stories. And so I kind of picked up on that naturally. And I try, if I can remember them from his stories, I try my best to incorporate those into the stories. That's um, cool. Yeah, he just, he loved to read poetry, and he had memorized quite a few. I can't even remember some of them, but he'd memorized quite a few. That's, yeah, that's that's a talent to have, to be able to memorize. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think many of us have that talent, or it, it's a, a it's a hard thing to do mm -hmm. and for, for someone to, to spend that time memorizing it or having that gift to, to memorize it. That's That's a special gift. And to make it come alive too, yeah, not sound, yeah, right. you know, sing songy or monotone. Yeah, it was never like that, never like that. And he, I'm, I've been trying to find some of the old um, poems that 
he knew by heart, but I would have to read them. So, and it's just, I think, so that I have them, not because I want to memorize them, but just, just to have them. And, and then there's also the, the fact that his voice had such a range to it, you know, brother Baird be down in here when he was talking and, and uh, then he'd get to the little old lady and her voice would change. (laughs) So I think I picked up all the intonation and inflection and, the rhythm and rhyme from my dad and from Pop Pops, because he used some voices too. Yeah, that's nice. So what draws you to history and mystery? Those dark stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My idea of history doesn't really have to do with dates. And sometimes I forget the names, but the setting and the feel of the story and what happened to the most important characters in the story or what connect me to history as they would if it was a, a, a folk tale or a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And mystery, I've always been drawn to mystery. I wasn't a child who was afraid in the dark. Um, I used to walk around in the dark as if it was daylight. And I think that has to do with my eyes. To this day, I tend to see better in the darkness than I do in bright light. All right, so when my eyesight's shut and I can't night drive anymore, I'll come and I'll move up into your <laughs> yeah, area. I'll right. help you navigate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in fact, the, the eye doctor was saying, your your eyes are, are in very good shape. And, 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 you know, he's just put the drops in, so I'm blinking, going, what, what? You know? and he said, can you, can you see in the dark very well? And I thought, man, I can see anything in the dark. And if you hadn't put these drops in my eyes, I might be able to see in the daylight, too. <laughs> but, um, my great-grandma had said, um, dead folks don't bother you much. It's the living folks you have to oh, worry about. Yes. And, and that was at a very young age before the depth of what she was saying had, had sunk into my mind. She would say that, you know, don't be afraid of the, the dark and don't be afraid of, of death or dead people. And so we played hide and seek in the cemetery at night. We weren't supposed nice. to, but... <laughs> You know, we never did anything that could be considered vandalism. We never did anything that that would harm anyone. But, yeah, um, me and a couple of my cousins and a couple of friends played hide-and-seek in the cemetery. I mean, I'm not being funny, but there's not a better place when you're young to play hide-and-seek at night in, oh, in the it, graveyards. That is so cool. It was perfect. It was perfect. Yeah. My, oh my poor gosh. little sister, she was... I had to take her with me places and one night she wanted to go and play with us and she didn't know what we were going to do. And I was trying to tell her, you, you don't, you don't want to go. And she's going, I'm telling mom, I'm telling mom. So we took her with us and we're running through the graveyard and her foot went into a, a little rabbit hole or gopher hole or something. Uh-huh. And she was screaming, the dead people got me. The dead people got me. <laughs> well, it's like that story when that girl's, sticks a skirt into the into the graveyard right because nobody yeah, wants yeah. nobody will go in there so that's a similar no. so you have the true story you have the real version of that I, oh, so 
and she and she twisted her ankle a little bit so we had to get her ankle out of there you know and and she was holding on to two of us as we walked her home and then we had to explain to my mother what had happened to her ankle <laughs> and where we were and why but he, you, know. you couldn't leave that last bit out <laughs> <laughs> we tried. <laughs> we, you know, we were like we we were <laughs> saying things like well, we were playing hide and seek, and she said, "With the dead people, with the dead people." <laughs> she wanted to tell on us so badly. <laughs> and my mother's saying, "I can remember my mother saying the dead people. What is she talking about?" So we ended up having to tell her it was in the graveyard. You oh, know? that's funny. That's a you should write a kids' book about that. Hide. <laughs> Playing, playing with the dead people. I never thought of that, Simon. That that'd be a good title. I have to write that down. <laughs> Quick, do it right now. Do it I right am. now before you forget. That's <laughs> that's yeah. Playing with the dead people. That would be a great kids book. Oh, she was so angry. My mother wanted to <laughs> kill us, but my sister was so angry. Her her little limp became this huge limp. You know? <laughs> <laughs> She so lifted some, four feet off the ground. Oh, yeah. So someone would say, oh, what happened? They took me to play with the dead people. <laughs> she was very melodramatic. I think a preacher was the right thing for her. Oh, that's great. Could you tell me a little bit about your process of telling stories? Like, so so from when you go, that's, that's a story I want to tell, through to, hey, everyone, i got a great story. <laughs> so what, what, uh, how, how does one get from one end of that to the other in your life, in, in, in Lynette's world? Well, um, it just starts with a spark in my mind, something, oh. as we're talking, something that I'll remember that I might want to share. And because most of the elders are gone, I have to do research in books and by asking other storytellers who might, might know something. Mm -hmm. But I look at what's in the books, I listen to what people say, and my mind just starts to work on how that all flows together. If it's a folk tale, I don't, unless I want to twist the tale or make it more contemporary, I don't want to take the life out of it by pulling it too far from the so called original tale. Who knows where some of these stories yeah, began, yeah, right? I, yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah. So I, I like the dark side of the folk tales and the fairy tales, and I try to keep it there, unless I'm gonna be uh, working with children, which means that I'm probably gonna have two or three versions of the same story. The one for the little ones, the one that I can tell to, oh, let's say older elementary through middle school, and then the, the one for everybody else. And <laughs> um, I tell them to myself first, it's, it's working in my head. I'm listening to the story as I'm working through it in my head. And then I start to speak the story. So I'm talking to myself, basically. Um, it's a good conversation. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will test run the story with the audience that is my target audience. For example, um, uh, uh, elder assisted living facilities for some. There are a couple groups of um, young people in high school with whom I work every year. I'm hoping that we'll still be able to do that this year, and I'll run stories by them. Um, for preschoolers and kindergarten students, I'll, I'll do something 
at a local school right. and get the feel for what's working in the story and what isn't. And by that, I'm not being judgmental. I'm analyzing, okay, what worked and why didn't it work? Not right. the story didn't work, but what didn't work as I shared the story. Right. And, right. and that that's kind of the process until I get it to the point where I've, I'm comfortable with it. And that's when I'll perhaps type it. Sometimes I just do a little outline of what are the most important points. And then eventually I will um, go to the keyboard, but a lot of it's in my head. And that was why I wanted to put things in books. So I oh. didn't lose what was in my head. Oh, that's interesting. Cause you've done a lot of books. You've got, um, Appalachian Tales, Folk Tales from the African-American Appalachian Tradition, Beyond the Briar Patch, Hot Wind, Boiling Rain. And then you're also, I'm, I'm sure you've written more since I've made this list, um, but you've also been a contributor in the August House Book of Scary Stories, Storytelling and QAR Strategies, which I want to talk about. <laughs> um, literacy Development in, in the Storytelling Classroom and the Storytelling Classroom Applications Across the Curriculum, the Storytelling Classroom. So, so tell me a little about the QR, QAR strategy and, and storytelling and all that. Um, QAR just means question and response, question and answer. But um, you're telling the story specifically so people will have questions in their minds to which you can respond. Or you're directing questions to get them to do some critical and creative thinking afterward. So it's a strategy of uh, very much storytelling, communication, the basic communication, and the if-then process of the stories. Right, that's really cool. I like that. What was your What was your favorite book to work on? Or don't you have one? It's just like the next oh. book is my favorite. <laughs> well, actually, I have two. It's the Afrolatchian Tales because it was the first one that I put my family stories in with a little background on what Afrolatchian means and what our lives were like. Um, and it just made me feel good to revisit the stories and have them in a format that would preserve them as long as that book's around. And the second one is one that I did with uh, Sherry Norfolk, who's a good friend. Mm -hmm. We put together a book called Boo Tickle Tales. It's uh, not so scary stories for ages uh, four to nine. So we have what we call baby boos in there. And they're just little silly stories. When little ones say they want a scary story, they don't really want a scary story. They just... Right. They want something for fun. So we yeah. gathered stories that we had. Um, and it's so it's our creative writing. And we put it all together into a book. And we had so much fun doing that. It's, it was the quickest I've ever worked on a book. And it was one of the easiest. And we were laughing all the time. So that's one of my other favorites, Boutical Tales. So that, that came out fairly recently, didn't it? Uh, was it last two, year or 2017 or 2018, oh, it? something like that. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that far back. It's yeah, um, we've done a couple other ones since then, but um, yeah, that's still one of my favorites. That's cool. Are you working on one right now? I'm putting together some granny stories. Nice. Um, 
you know, the, the power of little old ladies, <laughs> the folklore from my family, and I haven't been working on it consistently. But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get that together. So is this going to be a collection of folk and fairy tales and family stories? Um, well, what we were talking about, the cabin, I figured that can be kind of a wraparound to some of the stories because there were haunted cabin tales, too. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I have one about the, the I think you, you know this one that I had told about um, the devil's grandma um, and how she would come down the hill. She wanted some bread for her grandson and uh, the man who'd made a deal with the devil. He didn't want to keep giving her bread. And so he told her, you tell your grandson. <laughs> Wrong thing to say because her grandson was the devil who came down yeah. the hill. So she went from living in a little cabin on the top of the hill to a fine house at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> so, yeah, those kind of stories. Oh, that's going to be so good. That's going to be so good. What's, do you prefer telling or do you prefer writing or is it a kind of 50-50 split? I used to prefer telling. I'm very much a spoken word person. Mm -hmm. I learn by um, talking to myself when there are directions. I'm saying them aloud. I'm also a tactile kinesthetic learner. I'm touching and talking aloud to learn. So that fit very much into a spoken word uh, narrative. But after doing as much writing as I've been doing, Simon, I think it's kind of 50-50 now. Yeah. So yeah. Like the, the, the storytelling is not taking a backseat, but it's, 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 not, it's not driving the bus anymore. Right. It's not driving the bus. It, it's like the um, uh, student driver's car, <laughs> you know, <laughs> two steering wheels. <laughs> But there's only one break. Oh, no, right. no. Well, I don't know. No, there need to be two breaks yeah. sometimes. It's true. It's <laughs> true. I used to... And my What's... dad would get to talking sometimes, and he wouldn't necessarily seem like he was coming to a stop. When mm -hmm. And I would put the brakes on in the passenger seat, you know. Oh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. And he would just start laughing. He, so um, there would be times when he would do it on purpose. He would speed up a little bit. Oh, really? So we're talking about the 50s, you know, not as many cars, but he would speed yeah. up. Because I was putting the brakes on with my right foot as hard as I could in the passenger seat. And he thought that was funny. <laughs> so what lights up your eyes when you're, when you're storytelling? Um... The laughter of the children, mm -hmm. everybody's laughter really just makes me feel good. But when you see people starting to sit forward, leaning forward into the story, um, it just feels good, like almost like I'm hugging them with the story. And that just makes yeah, me feel that's a nice good. analogy. Yeah. 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 Those, those are, I think, are the things that, that touch me the most. Um, there are those times when someone will also say, um, that just touched me or you, you, um, that story that had so much meaning and it makes me feel good that I had just the right story for the right time for someone. Yeah. Does that happen often to you? It seems to, it really does. Um, someone wow. said, nice. uh, you would think that you knew what stories to tell. The truth is I always prep about two hours worth of material rather than whatever 
time it should be. And I listen as the participants. I don't like to even call them audience, the participants, because I, yeah. I can't do it without them. When they co they're coming in, I'm listening. And the energy that I can feel and hear from them is what helps me choose whichever stories I'm going to do in a program. Wow. That's really cool that you have that, that much prep when you go into a gig. Well, I think it's important. I'm, there are some who will have a set group of stories that, they're, mm -hmm. that he or she's going to tell. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But mm -hmm. I think I'm just kind of intuitive about that because I grew up among storytellers who chose the right story for the, the right time, you know. Right. Um, yeah. in fact, yeah, I usually go in with a couple of extra stories. And there have been times when I've, when I've done a gig and it's like, this set is not going to work. Mm -hmm. And then I have to like, I'm standing on, on a stage thinking, what the heck am I going to tell? <laughs> Flex. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not the and, best feeling in the world. <laughs> and I was at one event where someone told the story I planned to tell <sighs> before I told it. It was a folktale. I don't mean there was any copyright infringements yeah, yeah, yeah. of any kind. But they just happened to pick the same folk tale that I was going to tell. So I was like, well, and I pulled out. I, I have my brain on paper is what I say. I pulled out the list from my pocket and chose one of the other two that I had. But they had picked the exact story. Did a great job with it, too. But I was nervous as a cat after that. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's one of the hardest things for me when a coordinator wants to know which story are you going to tell. Right, yeah. Um, and they need that for timing, of course, and, and to make the program flow. But I really don't like being stuck with one story. Um, yeah. I like to have options. And so I have to kind of build up my energy before I tell that one particular story whose title they've already given. It's people. in the program, right? <laughs> yeah, it's already in the program. I really have to build up my energy. Uh, just, I start fidgeting and singing little stupid things to myself, you know, and sound like um, my own cheerleader. You can do it. It's okay. You can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that. What do you think your most rewarding work that you've done has been? Oh, well, recently I did some storytelling for survivors of domestic abuse wow. um, who were working on sharing their stories, um, perhaps as written or spoken word, but also in collage format. And so I came in and, well, came in, I came into the Zoom room, the Zoomiverse, and I shared <laughs> stories for them. Um, and they were very well received, and that touched my heart a lot. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't like to say survivor, but I have had experiences, and so I can relate um, very much to what they were or are going through. And uh, that made me feel really good that I'd been invited to share, and it went well enough that I'm going to do it again. It'll be my third time. Oh, um, nice. That's so cool. And I got to think, share. Oh, go ahead. Are you looking forward to doing it person to person, in person with them at some point? 
Oh, I wish. Yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, but the way the world is right now, who mm -hmm. knows when that'll happen. So the fact that it went well in the Zoomiverse made me feel even better because we can't make that. We can't create that energy that's in a space when when you're with everybody. Right. There's that connection. Oh, yeah. The audience. That's so important. Yeah. If they like you now, when they get to hear you in person, they're going to be like, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that energy. This yeah. this kind of telling in podcasts and in the the Zoomiverse is what uh, some second and third graders named it when I was doing a, a writing camp. Uh -huh. when we were in the Zoomiverse uh, and I'm using it and it seems to be going very, very well, but I can't wait to the time for the time that we can be together in a group um, face to face and heart to heart. You know, it's, it's just yeah. an energy that really, really touches both my mind and my heart. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I did a, I did a gig the other day and I found a live in-person gig um, and I found myself telling in a completely different style because I've been doing a lot of these Zoom um, concerts and presentations and stuff and Zoom meetings with school groups mm -hmm. and although I'm standing up you know instead of having you know more than six feet on either side of me I've now got like this you know two, three feet on either side of me that I can move within. And I'm I, actually, if I'm wearing jeans, I adopt the Bill Lep stance. My hands <laughs> go into my back pocket and, I, and I'm finding that I'm telling my stories with my hands in my back pocket. And I'm like, I never used to do that. Where's this coming from? <laughs> and it's, I think it's just because I'm standing in front of the camera and it's like, wow, better not put a baseball cap on and a t-shirt, otherwise I'm lost. You know? And then you'll start rocking back and forth. I know, into right? <laughs> Let me tell yeah. you about Skeeter. It doesn't sound as good with an English accent. <laughs> Skeeter. I like that. Yeah. Skeeter. <laughs> Skeeter was a good friend of mine. No, it doesn't work. It sounds like a mosquito. Work. Yeah, work. <laughs> and I have the same same difficulty. When I stand on a stage or stand in the library telling stories, I'm not concerned about my body language. It flows with the story. Yeah, but standing yeah. up in front of the camera, it's almost like I don't know what to do with my hands. And I find myself pulling at my shirt as if I'm exposing myself to someone. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's just yeah, yeah. Little, little nuances that I, I didn't do. But, but telling to that camera and that camera alone really – I'm pulling at my shirt and I'm, my hands just, they go stiff. <laughs> it's like, what is maybe, wrong with me? Maybe I'll put a little Facebook thing up asking storytellers to like, what what new habits do you have now that you didn't have before Zoomiverse? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, really. And, and, and see what people say. It'll be interesting to find out. Well, it bothered me so badly that I took a cue from a, a teenager and I put a picture near the camera where I confused so that I'm telling to that picture instead yeah. of, you know, to the camera, to the little light that's the camera. I'll right. even put up a little smiley face and I'm telling to the smiley face rather than telling to just that little light. So it 
I wouldn't have thought of it. Somebody else much younger and much smarter than I had figured that out, you know? Yeah, and no, I used to, I did that when I first started doing this. Um, I found it very hard to keep, I mean, I hate looking at myself. I get really self-conscious and then I start moving in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I ended up cutting a little, drawing a little smiley face, like you said, I poked the eye out and stuck that over the lens. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then also telling in, you know, if you're a mirror image or not a mirror image. And mm-hmm. I have a poster for when I'm doing a laughter yoga exercises, which I've done in the Zoomiverse for groups too. Um, well, if I don't have that image set up right, instead of it saying laugh, it says hugel. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yes>. it backwards. <laughs> yeah. I never would have worried about that before. <laughs> I know, right? So tell us a little bit. So I know I know another laughter yoga teacher called Robert Rivest who lives in oh, Massachusetts. Yes. You know Robert? I love him. I, love oh, him. Yeah, I, I only know him from meeting him on Facebook. But yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's a super nice guy. He was actually my, last week's Friday with Friends. Was it? Oh, no, he was, no, no, no. He was the September the 11th. He came and joined me on September the 11th for Friday and Friends. Oh, fantastic. Because I thought, what better person on, on, on September the 11th than having Robert? Yeah. Um, we, we had a great time there was much laughter going on (laughs) yes yes and i love watching him when he dances and does the laughter he's fantastic i would he uses a lot of his mime in his work as well yeah and i would love to get up to the studio that he uses and kind of uh review what i do as a teacher a laughter yoga teacher i i think it would benefit me to uh sit at the feet of this person and, and learn some more. He's great. He's just great. He is. He's super. So how did you get into laughter yoga? What, what drew you down that path? Um, my I'm mother. You, oh, really? <laughs> she was, my mother had, we had moved her in with us because of health issues. Mm-hmm. And I would take her to the doctor. I would have to sit in the waiting room because she didn't want me in the examination room. Um, she made the statement, if you're in there with me, I can't lie, <laughs> which is what she would do. <laughs> they would ask, uh, the, the nurse or doctor would ask them, have you been eating properly? Because she's diabetic. And she'd go, oh, yes. In the meantime, she had candy hidden in her room and cookies underneath her rocking chair, you know, these kind of things. Well, she couldn't lie if I was in there. So I'd have to wait for her in the waiting room. And there just happened to be a card that was announcing a laughter yoga session. Uh, And so I thought I could use some laughter because my mother was working on my last nerve by that time. (laughs) And um, so I went and I had such a good time. I went again and um, our teacher suggested that some of us try becoming laughter yoga leaders. So I did that and I taught exercises to my mom first because she she couldn't do a lot. Um, she has both osteo and rheumatoid arthritis and she thought it, she would always say it was the dumbest thing she'd ever done. Then she'd call her friend and she'd tell her friend over the phone what to do. So, ah, uh, nice. yeah. <laughs> so I use it mostly in workshops um, and for relaxation for pre and post test stress um, for both teachers and students. Yeah. Um, 
and um, as a way to relax for storytellers who are nervous before they tell their stories. Um, it's a nice way to relax and work on your breathing at the same time. So yeah. that's kind of how I got into it. First of all, it was just to feel better. And mm -hmm. then secondly, to give my mother some exercises she could do. And um, now, in fact, I think I have another session to do this Saturday with people. And it's amazing. You know, I'm in a chair and they're sitting on the floor and things. And we're still having the best time laughing. Yeah, it, laughter is really good. It, I mean, you can't beat it. And I, I, I th you know, you talk about humor in stories, and I think that's so important that, that we do that, that we have humor in stories, because people, you know, there's so much, I mean, even before COVID and everything, let me rephrase that, even before 2020, you yes. know, <laughs> we, we really did need a lot of laughter because... You know, everything that's going on is, is is just like meh right now. And then when 2020 came along, it's, you know, I don't think I've told that many deep stories. You know, mm -hmm. I've, I've stuck with the, the comedy, and, or not the comedy, right. but the, the stories with humor in them. Something, um, yeah, something uplifting. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we already have so much that's depressing um, in aggressive ways right yeah. now. I, yeah. So to me, the laughter has become even more important than it was. And uh, the screen doesn't necessarily limit being able to laugh, mm -hmm. um, nor does the fact that everybody in my groups doesn't necessarily speak American business English because we all laugh in the same language. So We do. It's yeah. called ha-ha. That's right. Ha-ha. <laughs> And, <laughs> and the only time I've had any difficulties in it was when I say we're going to do vowel movement laughter. I have to explain, not vowel movement laughter, vowel movement laughter. I bet there are some people that could do with that, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what other sounds their bodies might be making while we're laughing. You know? Maybe they'd be a lot less uptight after that. <laughs> <laughs> a little release might help, yes. yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, have you had... Um, Get back to the storytelling quickly before the <laughs> conversation degenerates too much. I will end the podcast here, as the conversation goes on a little longer. If you want to hear the remaining 25 minutes or so, you can find it on my Patreon site. If you want to hear more of Lynette Ford, then go to Friday with Friends, the 23rd of October 2020 episode, on my Facebook page, Simon Brooks Storyteller where you'll hear Lynette tell a spooky story along with Diane Macklin and Adam Booth into my Halloween edition. Wahaha! Lynette's website is storytellerlynford.com. You'll find it in the show notes on Podbean and on my Patreon site. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk or fairy tale, myths and legends storyteller, send me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree, yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. Shout out for Chris Jed 
for creating and recording this great music for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check them out. You can help me keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early release, and exclusive content on my work. www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. Thanks to all my patrons for supporting my little podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Want your name mentions? Join the gang and become one of my patrons. If you can't join these wonderful folks, then do something you can do. I would be very grateful if you would leave a review on podcast... Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you found this episode. It won't take long and it helps not just me, but others find and enjoy this podcast. Share it with your friends and family if you think they'll enjoy it. Thanks again for being here with me. I know that there are a lot of other places you could be, so I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out. It's just a story. <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> yeah.